to open it up to Romans chapter 4. Uh, you'll be helped, I promise, over the next 50 or so minutes, if you are sitting with a Bible in front of you. So if you don't have one, like squeeze over to the person closest to you that has a Bible so you can look along. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, Romans is in the New Testament, so you've got Old Testament, everything that happens prior to Christ. New Testament, you've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're the biographies of the life of Jesus, you've got Acts, the spreading of the Gospel out and then you've got letters uh, and this Romans is a letter written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, to a group of Christians in Rome. Uh, he's writing about AD 57, about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this is probably the greatest letter ever written. Uh, and we're in chapter 4 and we're going to look at verse 25. So find Romans, look for the big four and the small 25 and that's where I'm reading from. In our God's Word. It says who on the screen behind me, it could also be translated he and it's referring to Jesus. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, Good Friday, he was delivered up for our trespasses. This morning, Easter Sunday, raised for our justification. We're going to focus on those words this morning. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray now as we come to your word that you would open our eyes and that you would show us wonderful soul-stirring, eternity-defining truths. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, way back in the 17th century, there was a French philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal. Uh, and he once said these words, It is a monstrous thing to see one and the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and yet so strangely insensitive to the greatest. You think, well, that's a lovely philosophical way to start a sermon on an Easter Sunday morning. What does he mean? Well, he's actually talking about death. And what he's saying is that even though every single one of us is going to die, what we all have is this natural tendency to disconnect from that reality. We distract ourselves with trivial, minor things. We become sensitive to them. And that then enables us to become strangely detached and insensitive to greater things, which for him was the problem of death. If you ask the average Aussie what Easter means to them, the answers won't be uniform, because let's face it, Easter means different things to different people. But for some, it's the chance to enjoy holidays and hot cross buns and a brief hiatus from the hectic pace of ordinary life at home. For others, it's about family and friends and even the footy. There's the beach and camping and barbecues and DIY jobs inspired by Bunnings 
And of course, there's all those eggs left behind by a so-called bunny. It is a monstrous thing to see one and the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and yet so strangely insensitive to the greatest. Now, don't want you misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all those cultural things that we enjoy at Easter time are bad and my goal here, you'll be pleased to know, is not to make you morbid. But I do want to point out that if we live in a kind of deluded denial about the reality of death, if you never allow yourself to feel the sting of death, then the relevance of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus is just always going to feel one or two steps removed from your life. It's always going to feel somewhat irrelevant, somewhat unimportant, somewhat disconnected from your life. You'll go through today thinking that, that it's really just about chocolate eggs and you'll miss that what's on offer is actually eternal life. One of the best books I've read in recent years is a book titled Remember Death by a guy called Matt McCullough. The basic sort of thesis of the book is that if, if death is, is not much of a problem to you, Jesus is not going to seem like much of a solution. I think that's basically right. And the average Aussie living on the Gold Coast could learn something from this. So, so I, want to, I want to do something at the start of this time. It's going, to, it's going to feel counterintuitive. I want to help you to see how wonderful the resurrection of Jesus is how glorious the truth of Romans 4.25 is by connecting them to realities that most of us have probably disconnected them from. I want to highlight two problems that McCullough talks about in his book that really wrap their tentacles around everything in our lives. The first is the problem of impermanence. The second is the problem of irreversibility. Let me summarise what he says about the problems of impermanence and irreversibility. Uh, when it comes to impermanence, he, he basically says that the problem is simply this, that with time, everything changes and nothing lasts. And I mean, it's, it's obvious when someone says it, but it's so easy to miss it. But once your kind of eyes have been opened to the reality, actually, you see it everywhere. So every mouth-watering meal, every deep conversation, every epic movie, every great holiday, every satisfying job, even every Coomera Baptist Church pastoral prayer eventually ends. <laughs> now, of course, taken by itself, impermanence isn't entirely bad. No one wants to watch a movie that goes on forever. People have tried to make them, but no one wants to watch them. If you're a parent... Even your most enthusiastic child this morning did not want the Easter egg hunt to go on forever. And even if you allow them to eat, despite their protest, if you allow them to eat all the chocolate they want, eventually they will get sick of it. They'll be full and they might chuck. See, see, variety is, as we say, the spice of life. The very fact that God has built impermanence into the rhythms and routines of our lives, you see this, for example, in the fact that we have seasons shows that impermanence is a good thing. It brings variety and freshness to life. The problem, though, McCullough says, is if you take impermanence and you then unite it, you fuse it together with irreversibility. The truth that some things are irreversibly lost, never to return again. That creates, he says, the problem of 
irretrievable loss. Time, McCullough says, never gives without also taking away. So today, time will give you new experiences. They might be good, they might be bad, but you'll have new experiences. You'll miss, though, that it's already taken from you yesterday's experiences. Time has given Narelle and I, 15-year-old Noah and 14-year-old Annabelle and 10-year-old Ruby and 7-year-old Katie and 5-year-old Josiah. But all of my kids were once the size of Dempsey Dakers and Ezra Lean and Banksia Colum and Benaya Tasca. But time has taken them from us. Now, of course, we have memories and photos and film, not as much as my wife would like, but we do have them. But the truth is, they're gone. Never to return again. You look a bit sad, let me assure you. It's not that Daryl and I wanted our children to be permanently preschools. I'm very grateful that they can wipe their own bottoms and get dressed in the morning and feed themselves. You see, as our kids get older, our relationship with them grows, our love for them deepens, and that's a good thing. The problem, though, is that we are living in a world where impermanence has been united to irreversibility. And that means that with enough time, one by one, we will be permanently, irreversibly lost to one another, never to return again. You see, our our sin, our choosing to rebel against God, the author of life and love and all good things, separates us from Him. The wages of sin is death. And in a world with death, everything, I mean absolutely everything, gets stained by impermanence and irreversibility. And here's the thing, the younger you are, the more difficult it is for you to see this. So your perspective at 18 or 28 is going to be very different to your perspective if the Lord gives you this many years at 78 or 88. You see, when you're young, it's natural to think that life as you know it will continue. And if you do think of change, you'll you'll tend to think of those changes simply as additions, not subtractions. So I'll finish school, I'll get a degree, a spouse, a house, children, additions, not subtractions. Only positive, not negative. So I want you to listen just very carefully to what McCullough says. It's long, but it's worth quoting at length. He says, The younger you are, the harder it is to experience the true weight of this problem. When you're young, it's almost impossible to see that what your life feels like now won't last forever. It doesn't matter how many times you're told that time flies or how many times you're warned by someone older to enjoy what you have while it lasts. It's natural to feel like what you have will go on forever. If anything, the future promises more gain, not loss. You tend to view your life as a kind of savings account. With each passing year, you're adding new assets, watching the number continue to grow, you're expanding your mind through education, you're getting better at your job, you're developing new hobbies or skills, you're forming new and meaningful relationships or deepening the relationships you already have. Overall, it feels like you're stockpiling things you love about life. So you focus on what you don't have yet and doing what's necessary to get it, not the prospect of losing what you do have. But the truth is, life works like a savings account in reverse. 
zoomed out to the span of an entire life cycle, you see that no one is actually stockpiling anything. You're spending down, not saving up. Everything you have, your healthy body, your sharp mind, your treasured possessions, your loving relationships will one day be everything you lost. See, it doesn't feel like it now, sitting in this room on an Easter Sunday morning, but the truth is our lives are like cracked buckets with water just drip, drip, drip every day. And one day, given enough time, every single person in this room will find everything in their bucket gone. So, happy Easter. (laughs) It's not comfortable to think about, and I think you realise why we are so attracted to minor things. But here's the thing. The resurrection of Jesus shows that death is not the end. That impermanence and irreversibility will not always be connected in such a way that brings the pain of irretrievable loss. It holds out the hope to all of us of a, a, a promise rather of a physical life after death in a real world, redeemed, freed from sin and sickness and suffering and death. There is not another person in history who offers you what Jesus offers you in the gospel. I want you to look down at Romans 4.25. So if you've got your Bible there, look down at Romans 4.25 and, and notice how Paul ties the resurrection of Jesus to our justification. I'll explain what justification means in a moment. Just for now, notice that he says, Jesus was raised for our justification. And in the very next verses, so Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, he connects our justification with three aspects of our salvation. So look at Romans 5, verse 1. So three aspects of our salvation. One is the past, one relates to the present, the other relates to the future. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying is that through our justification, our past debt has been paid. We now have peace with God. Verse 2, Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul's speaking here about the present blessing of a justified person. They have access to God. You can actually know the God who made you and who loves you. You can have a relationship with Him if you're justified. Second half of verse 2, he goes on to say, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What Paul means by the hope of the glory of God is our future hope that come the end of our lives in this world, God will raise us and transform us and perfect us to be like Jesus. We will live with Him forever in a deathless world where impermanence and irreversibility will not be united in such a way that will bring the pain of irretrievable loss. I want you to just just put your thinking caps on for a minute, look at the verses closely and follow Paul's logic. He ties the the resurrection of Jesus to our justification. He ties our justification to three aspects of our salvation, one of which is our rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. 
So, remove the resurrection of Jesus, you remove our justification. Remove our justification and you remove our rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. You will still have hot cross buns, you will still have Easter eggs, you will still have the beach and DIY jobs inspired by bunnings and barbecues and families and friends. But you will also still have the problem of sin and death and impermanence and irreversible loss. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at those six words from Romans chapter 4 about the resurrection of Jesus and our justification. He was raised for our justification. If you're a note taker, I have three points. Number one, what is justification and why is it important? Number two, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with our justification? And number three, how are we to respond if we're to enjoy justification and the hope of the glory of God this Easter? Make sense? Okay. When Paul says, so what is justification? When Paul says, Jesus was raised for our justification, what does he mean by justification? I want to play with you a game of uh, word association. So I'm going to say a word. And I want you to play along, I want you to think of a word in your mind, maybe try and think of three or four words. So don't switch off, actually engage, think of three or four words when I say a word, okay? So if I say, for example, the word golf, what other words come into your mind? Craig's smiling brightly. You'll probably think of associated words like club or course or ball or par or birdie or mini golf. If you hate golf, you'll think boring. If you Love golf, you'll think, I can't wait till tomorrow morning's Masters. <laughs> if I say the word beach, what words come into your mind? You probably think of associated terms like water, waves, surfing, sand, sunscreen, lifeguards, and if you're anything like my wife, sharks. <laughs> what about if I say the word justification? What words come into your mind? If you struggle to think of words, it might be because you don't really understand justification. Justification is actually a legal term. So, just as club and course and ball and par and birdie belong to the sphere of golf, and just as water and waves and sand and sun and sunscreen belong to the sphere of the beach, Justification belongs to the legal sphere of the courtroom. So, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 34, Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. So, so, so notice when Paul uses there the word justify or justification, he, he associates it with things like someone bringing a charge against another person, and then that person either being justified or condemned. In justification, God the judge enters the courtroom, he sits in the seat of judgment, so to speak, and he clears a person of guilt, and he declares them to be righteous. Again, if you have your Bible there, 
I want you to look back at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And cast your eyes from there all the way to Romans 3, verse 20. If you're on a phone, it's going to be hard. You're going to be flicking with your thumb profusely. But Romans 1, 18 to Romans 3, 20. What you have there is this large section where Paul is mounting a case to show that every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we will never be justified in God's sight by our own works. So when we stand before God the judge on the last day, we won't be found innocent. We will not be declared righteous because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God will find us guilty because of our sin, and that will lead to eternal death, that will be irreversible, and we will have nothing but time to contemplate irretrievable loss. We don't have time to look at everything that Paul says, but let me just highlight one thing from each chapter, from Romans 1 to Romans chapter 3, to help you feel the weight of Paul's argument. So, if you look at chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, Paul says that every single person knows that God exists because God has revealed something about who He is through the things that have been made. My friend, if you're here this morning and you're uh, not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, I don't, want, I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul's saying. You might think, I'm only here because my spouse invited me along or a friend invited me to church. You're saying that Paul's saying that I know that God exists. I am telling you, I am not even sure that God exists. When Paul says that we know that God exists because of the fact that he's revealed something about his nature through the things that have been made, he's not saying that every single person self-consciously acknowledges God's existence. So, your uncertainty about God's existence, or even your certainty in his non-existence, isn't an indication that you're being insincere. That's not what Paul's saying. What it is an indication of, though, ironically is the truthfulness of Romans 1. Because he goes on to say that what we all do is we suppress the truth of God's existence in unrighteousness. So what we do is we turn from living for God and worshipping Him to living for things in creation and worshipping them. And that renders all of us guilty before God. It is very possible to be sincere and yet be sincerely deceived by sin. So just imagine a scenario where I've gone through life suppressing the truth of God's existence, I'm now at the end of my life and I'm standing before God and there's a sense in, in which I am for a moment surprised. And I start therefore to make excuses. I object. Lord, I, I didn't even know that you existed. Paul is saying, that creation itself will testify against me. Romans 1.19 For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So, so here's the thing, if, if I think at the judgment I can plead ignorance about God's existence, the whole creation will be there testifying against me. Rubbish, Nathan. You could clearly see something of God's power and nature in the creation when you walked along Main Beach. 
when you stood at the top of Mount Tambourine and looked across the rolling, you could see something about the nature of the God who made all of this. And you chose to suppress the truth and you turned it into idolatry and you did not worship God. In Romans 2, Paul says that everyone will be judged fairly. And that even if you have never read a Bible and you've never had access to any of God's commands, you have a conscience that bears witness to your guilt. So, so look at Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, For all have sinned without the law, or sorry, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged under the law. For when the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So by conscience, here's what Paul means. He means that internal, inner sense that all of us have of right and wrong. So even if you have never read any of God's written laws, all of us have this internal sense of right and wrong that reflects God's written law. Your dog doesn't have that. Your cat doesn't have that. Your budgie doesn't have that. Your goldfish doesn't have that. You have that because you are made in the image of God. And to paraphrase one writer, since God is a moral God, by which he means he makes moral judgments about good and bad, right and wrong, you are inevitably a moral being. You make judgments about what's right and wrong, good and bad. And what all of us do is we knowingly do what we think is wrong. We violate our conscience. That's why one of the things that is common to us all in this room is the fact that every one of us knows what it is to feel guilty. Now, you might try to ignore it. You might try to suppress it. You might try to distract yourself from it. You might try to do good things to appease it. You might even go and see a counsellor to help you not feel it. But that all of us know what it is to experience feelings of guilt points to the fact that every single one of us actually stands objectively guilty before God. I read a, a story a number of years ago by a guy called John MacArthur, most of you all know who he is, as a story of uh, the Avianca plane crash that happened in Spain back in 1984. It was a passenger plane. Basically what happened is that it ploughed into the side of a mountain and it killed 181 people on board. Now, if you've ever watched air crash investigators, uh, or investigations, rather, you'll know that one of the key things uh, in figuring out what happens with an air crash is to find the black box, because the black box very often uh, lets you know what's happened, or what's gone wrong in the moments leading up to the crash. When they found the, the black box with this, with this plane, uh, the air crash investigators made a very disturbing discovery. Because you see, you see the, the automatic warning system of the plane was actually activated. It was going off, it was saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. See this computer-generated voice repeatedly saying that. But they think that visibility was poor. The pilot could kind of see, but not really. He couldn't see any danger. So he wrongly believed, assumed, that the automatic warning system was malfunctioning. 
And so one of the last things you hear him say on the black box recording is, shut up. And he flicks the warning system off. Here's what MacArthur says. When I saw that tragic story on the news shortly after it happened, it struck me as a perfect parable of the way modern people treat the warning messages of their consciences. The wisdom of our age says feelings of guilt are nearly always erroneous or hurtful, therefore we should switch them off. The conscience is generally seen by the modern world as a defect that robs people of their self-esteem. But far from being a defect or disorder, our ability to sense our own guilt is a tremendous gift from God. He designed the conscience into the very framework of the human soul. It is the automatic warning system that tells us, pull up before we crash and burn. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. Paul is not saying that all of your feelings of guilt are right. Your conscience is not infallible. That's why, notice, he says that our consciences have conflicting thoughts. Sometimes they accuse, sometimes they excuse. But the point is that every single one of us knows what it is to experience feelings of guilt, points to the fact that without Jesus, every single one of us stands objectively guilty before God and we will not be justified in God's sight because we know that we have not lived the life that we ought to have lived. So it's not surprising if you go to chapter 3, that by the time you get to the end of this section, look at Romans 3 verse 20, Paul concludes by saying, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So in Romans 1, 18 to 3.20, you've got this compelling case that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we cannot be justified before God by our own good works. We are stuck in a world with sin and death and impermanence and irreversibility and irreversible loss with no hope of ever getting out. If that seems dark, it's deliberately so. But Paul noticed brackets. So he draws like a bright, bold, light, glorious, golden frame around that section. So, so look at Romans 1, verse 16. So he's bracketed Romans 1, 18 to 3.20 with references to a righteousness that doesn't come from our good works but it comes from God and it can be received by us through the empty hands of faith. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, verse 17, for in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel reveals to us a righteousness that comes from God and is available to us to be received by faith. If you look at the other side of the, of the section, so Romans 3.21, you'll see the other golden bracket. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So, so yes, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and without Jesus we stand condemned before God the judge. But here is what God 
does for us in the gospel. He comes in the person of his son. And he does two central things when it comes to our justification. So so theologians will refer to this as the passive obedience of Christ and the active obedience of Christ. In his passive obedience, he gives up his life on the cross. He dies to bear the penalty, the punishment that our sin deserves. So justification includes forgiveness. So look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. How? Well, by grace, Paul says, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. In other words, this is not something that you do by your own good works. This is something that God does for you through the cross of Jesus that you can receive by faith. Think about it. If our justification only involved the forgiveness of our sins, why why wouldn't Jesus have just kind of appeared on the scene as a 30-something-year-old man, cut to the chase and gone straight to the cross? So, so, So why did the incarnation, His becoming man, begin in the womb? Um... If you're old enough, like me, to remember the late 90s, you might remember a a movie called Meet Joe Black. Um, Basically, the movie is about the incarnation of death. So, death wants to experience life. So, he takes the body of a a guy in his early 30s, played by Brad Pitt, which is interesting. Our culture wants to depict death. We make death as attractive as possible because that lets us go on with trivial, minor things. Anyway, death uh, becomes a, a, a person personified, takes on flesh and experiences life. Well, in the incarnation, God, the author of life, becomes a man in order to experience death. But why didn't he just become a 33-year-old man and go straight to the cross? The answer is that our justification involves more than just the forgiveness of our sins. So, so think about it, if If God simply forgives us our sins and wipes our slate clean, that means that we still need a life of perfect obedience in order to be declared righteous before God and inherit eternal life. Without that, we will not have eternal life. In His active obedience, Jesus lived that perfect life for us. So let me put all that together for you. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we can never be justified by our own good works. But when a person who stands condemned before God with no righteousness of their own turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus alone, he takes the penalty on the cross so that we can be forgiven. And then he gives us his perfect life of obedience. And God the judge brings forward, if you like, that end time verdict and declares us righteous once for all time never to change forever safe and secure before God the judge that's justification Paul says Jesus was raised for our justification such that if you remove 
the resurrection of Jesus, you would remove our confidence that we can be justified, declared right before God. So what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with our justification? What's the connection? Just think about it, right? Paul's already said in, in Romans 3, uh, 24, that we're justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He's referring to the cross. In Romans 5, 9, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by His blood, he's referring again to the cross of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, He, that's God the Father, made Him, that's God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Where did God the Father treat God the Son like sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God? Again, that happened on the cross. So if Jesus secured for you a perfect righteousness through His perfect life and then died on the cross to pay for your sins, shouldn't you be justified regardless of the resurrection? Why does Paul say here that Jesus was raised for our justification? Why does he say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus hasn't been raised, our faith is futile, it's meaningless and we're still in our sins. So we're still in the courtroom condemned by the judge. I want you to imagine, just for a moment, that you have a, a job cleaning in a prison. You go there each night and you, and you clean and there's a block of 10 cells, prison cells. The first night you're there, they're full. 10 people in the cell. You go back the next night, the same 10 people are there. A week later, the same 10 people are there. A year later, the same 10 people are there. A decade later, same 10 people are there. 20 years later, you're there, it's all back now, but the same people are there. One night you walk in and you notice one of the cells is now empty because the prisoner has been released. What does the empty cell signify? It signifies that the punishment has been paid, that justice has been satisfied, that the condemnation is over, that the person has been freed and is now free to live life. Now, as long as the person stays in the cell, None of those things are true. But when the cell becomes empty, all of them become true. And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb. If our representative stayed in the grave, none of those things would be true for us. But because he emerged from the grave... It was God's confirmation that all of those things are now true for us. Listen, listen to Kevin DeYoung, he says, If Jesus had not been raised, it would be an indication to us that the work of salvation had not yet been accomplished. His being raised indicates the satisfaction of divine justice. The punishment is over, the merit of Christ has proven worthy, the debt has been paid, death has been vanquished, sin has been atoned for. The cross and the empty tomb cannot be separated. 
The two events are dependent upon each other. Together, they demonstrate that Christ's payment for sin has been accepted and his victory is ours. Jesus was raised for our justification. So what does all this mean for us this Easter? How are we to respond if we are to enjoy justification before God and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God this morning? Well, we've already seen that we can never be justified by our own good works. The the only way for us to be justified is by faith in God and His promises to us in the Gospel. And that's really Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 4. So if you look at Romans chapter 4, you'll see that Paul talks a lot about Abraham, the father of the Jews. Because you see, Abraham demonstrates, he illustrates that God's people have always, in fact, been justified by faith. They've never been justified by their own good works. So if you're here on Good Friday, you'll, you'll know some of this from Darren's sermon. But if, you, if not, uh, maybe you know the story of Abraham, maybe not. Let, let me kind of give you a, a, a quick summary. In, in, in Genesis 15... So again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis 15 comes before Exodus 20 when God gives Israel the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. It comes before Genesis 17 when God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham an heir, a son. And descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, humanly speaking, it was impossible. So think of our problem, sin, death, impermanence, irreversibility, irretrievable, impossible. Abraham was old, Sarah was barren, but Abraham had God's word of promise and he began to think, reason. Some people think, That faith starts because thinking stops. That's not true. Abraham reasoned, he thought. Romans 4.17, he thinks, This God who made these promises to me created everything. He brings into existence things that don't exist and brings life when things seem dead. It's not too hard for this God to give me a son. And so, in hope he believed. When humanly speaking, there was no hope. He took God at his word and believed God's promises, which started to shape the entire course of his life, and God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. And he declared Abraham justified. But Romans 4 verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, according to his own works? For if Abraham was justified by works, verse 2, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, for what does the Scriptures say? Now quoting Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Application to us as Christians, look at the end of the chapter, Romans 4, 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So so God's words to Abraham are words to us. If we believe God, if 
We believe that God raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God will declare us righteous. Verse 24, it, that is our faith, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Here's what one commentator says, Abraham's faith was in the promise of a descendant. Our faith is in what God says one of his descendants has achieved. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I want to finish by trying to do two things. So I'm very aware that some here this morning just don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mean, after all, you, you know how death works. 100% of the people that you know who have died have stayed dead. So belief in a resurrection just doesn't seem realistic. Maybe you think it's a myth. Started at a time when people tended to be more gullible, believe odd superstitious things like that. Others of us may believe, but if we're being honest, we have deep reservations. I want to help those of us who are rejecting the resurrection of Jesus to start opening up to the possibility that you can be justified before God this Easter and enjoy and rejoice in the hope of glory because Jesus was raised from the dead. And for the rest of us, especially those who are battling doubt, reservations, I want to help you to think a bit like Abraham so that your faith in God's Word might be strengthened and any reservations you have might be turned to rejoicing. See, Tim Keller says that every sceptical doubt contains at least some elements of belief. Here's what he means. You can't doubt belief in one thing without simultaneously believing something else in its place. That's inevitable. So, for example, if you say, I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, or I have reservations that he rose from the dead, there are other beliefs that you are not doubting but are embracing at that moment about the resurrection. Have you thought about what they are? See, Christianity is different than every other religion in that it stakes its whole credibility on particular events that happened in history. So pretty much all historians agree, whether they're believers or not, in at least this much. That there was a man in the first century named Jesus of Nazareth who really did die. That he was buried, that his tomb was found empty, and a wide range of people claimed to have seen him physically alive in the days after his death. So if, if, you, if you doubt that the resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation for the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances, I wonder what are your beliefs about the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances that you're choosing to embrace and believe instead and not doubt? Maybe you think that it's unlikely that Jesus rose from the dead because people back in the first century, just, they just tended to be more gullible, believe things like that. Here's why that's not true. Um, let me show you what I mean. MJ read the account of Jesus' resurrection from Luke 24. Did you notice that when the women first told the apostles that Jesus had been raised, Luke wrote these words, Luke 24, 11. 
These words seem to them an idle tale. Now, Luke is a medical doctor. And the word that he uses that's translated idle tale is actually a medical term used to describe a kind of delirium. Now, the main place where I've seen people with delirium is on public transport. That's not an insult to you if you are a public transport person. It's just true of my experience. Back when I lived in Melbourne for five years, I worked in the city and nearly every day I caught the train to work. And I would often see people, typically they were guys, who would sit there and they would speak to themselves or they would speak to others like they were downright out of their mind. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand the illustration. The point I'm trying to make is not that the women who reported the empty tomb were acting like the last delirious person you saw on public transport. The point is that what you felt and thought about the nonsense that came out of their mouth was like what the apostles first felt and thought when the women, women told them that the tomb was empty and Jesus was raised. Now, there's more that we could say about the historical truth of whether people were more gullible back then and believed in resurrections. You can talk to me afterwards about it if you like, but for now, let's just say that wasn't true. That seems very much the case from Luke 24. They did not believe. They acted, I think, how I would act if someone told me that my father, who died eight years ago, they'd just seen him alive. I'd think, you are nuts. Okay, so maybe it's not gullibility, maybe it was guile. Maybe a small group of Jesus' first disciples made the whole resurrection thing up. They stole the body and then pretended like the whole thing was true. Here's the thing. The Jewish expectation at the time was that a Messiah would come and he would kick out the Romans and he would reign and rule as God's king over all the earth. So why would a group of Jewish people make up a story about a resurrection so that they could follow a Messiah who they knew was dead? It would make no sense to a Jewish person in the first century. What's more, if the body of Jesus was stolen, that wouldn't explain why so many other people claim to have seen Jesus alive physically. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul's writing as if to suggest, you can go and speak to these people, they're still alive. What's more, did you notice, again in Luke 24, that the first people to witness the resurrection were women. It's the same in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel. Here's why that's significant. There was a Jewish historian in the first century named Josephus. Here's what he says about uh, women giving evidence in a court of law. He says, From women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. They're too silly to be trusted with anything serious. Now, that's understandably um, offensive to us, I'm not saying that to offend anybody, but just to show that that's actually indicative of what people thought of women in the first century. They were seen as second-class citizens. They had very little social standing, and their testimony was absolutely worthless. And yet, all four Gospels have women as the first eyewitnesses. I read an article a while ago by a guy called Ben Smart. And he, he said in the article, just, just imagine for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of one of the gospel writers. Doesn't matter which one, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. So you get together with the other three, 
You think, let's make up a story about a resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know why you do that, but let's just say that's what they did. Obviously, you're going to think, that's a, that's a hard sell. How, how are we going to get people to believe that this is credible? I, I know. Let's make the way, what we say rather, seem reliable by choosing witnesses that most people think are unreliable. You see, if they were making the whole thing up, the last thing they'd do is have women as the first eyewitnesses. So why, in all four Gospels, are they? What better explanation is there than the most straightforward one? Which is that they weren't making it up, they actually cared about the truth and just reported what happened. And then you've got the problem of why they'd lie in the first place. Think about why you lie. Typically, we lie to make ourselves look good or to protect ourselves. But when you read through the Gospels, you, you see pretty early that self-preservation and self-protection isn't very high on the, on the disciples' agenda. In short, they don't come off looking very good and what they write about gets most of them in a lot of trouble. I used to have a friend who worked, I still have friends, but this is a, an old friend, uh, he, he, he worked, <laughs> he worked uh, on the Piranha Task Force um, in Melbourne. If you know anything about Melbourne and the gangland killings, that was the task force assigned to that, um, those cases, you know, Matt, the Moran brothers and Andrew Venuman and Carl Williams and Mick Gatto and all those um, unsavoury characters. Anyway, we're travelling together in the early 2000s and we were talking and he, he said to me that the hardest thing about getting away with murder, I wasn't asking questions, it wasn't like I was planning to do anyone harm, he said the hardest thing about, about getting away with murder is keeping all the lies. You see, people nearly always slip up. They let their guard down, they say something they shouldn't, they confide in the wrong person. It might be the next day, the next week, it could be a decade later, but people nearly always slip up. You might have heard of Charles Colson. He was an attorney and a political advisor who gave special counsel to President Nixon in the years leading up to the Watergate scandal. He later became a Christian and reflecting upon the resurrection of Jesus and the Watergate scandal, he wrote this, I know that the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Of course, there are other reasons why a person might reject the resurrection of Jesus. Some reject it because they've so convinced themselves that we live in a closed universe governed only by materialistic laws. No God, no one to intervene. And so if that's the universe that we're in, of course a dead person can't rise from the dead. All of us have a worldview, a perspective on the nature of life and our lives in it, and that can make us either more open or closed to the possibility of a resurrection. And if, I think if you have a worldview that can't make sense 
of what Paul says in the opening chapters of Romans about our state, our condition, and the evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then maybe it's not the Bible or the evidence that's the problem, but your worldview. See, none of the disciples were materialistic atheists. But none of them had any place in their worldview that a Messiah would come, he would die on a cross, and then rise from the dead in the middle of history. None of them did. And yet it was, in the end, the resurrection of Jesus that led them to better understand God's Word and change their worldview. Others reject it for more explicitly moral reasons. See, if Jesus really was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, some things naturally flow from that, things that I might not personally like. So if Jesus died for my sins and He rose to make me right with God, that means that I'm a sinner. That means that my good works aren't good enough. I'm not naturally right before God. That means that there's something basically wrong with me. And for some people, that poses too big a problem to their pride. It's too hard a pill to swallow. And so they keep suppressing the truth and they go on telling themselves that everything's going to be okay. But Psalm 36 says that with the wicked there is no fear of God before their eyes and they flatter themselves that their iniquity will not be found out. But it will be. And when that day happens, they will stand before the resurrected Jesus and both creation and their own consciences will testify against them. For others, their reservations might be more a result of deep disappointment. It might be cancer or chronic fatigue or childlessness or the collapse of your career or conflict with close friends. Life in this world can leave us at times so disappointed that we wonder if a better world will ever come. Friend, if that's you, remember that Abraham faced decades of disappointment before he received his promised son. And the purpose of the death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't to give us now the life of our dreams. It was to make us right with God and to give us a world beyond our wildest dreams. So by all means, eat hot cross buns and chocolate Easter eggs. Go to the beach, watch the footy, enjoy barbecues with family and friends, your DIY jobs inspired by bunnies. But, but loved ones, do not become so sensitive to minor things that you become strangely insensitive to the greatest, which for us is not death, but the hope of glory in a deathless world where impermanence and irreversibility will never again create the pain of irretrievable loss. Jesus was raised for our justification. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow and enjoy today.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you